Four years after the end of the Civil War, on May 10th, 1869, two days late, the all-Irish crew finally arrived at Promontory Point to meet the Central Pacific's all-Chinese crew, and the final two tracks were laid. Over 700 people gathered for the ensuing celebration as the two locomotives, one from Sacramento, the other from Omaha, were jockeyed into place, poised nose to nose, so close they were almost touching. There were banners and ubiquitous flags and a white grandstand festooned with red, white, and blue bunting. There were ladies in bright dresses, little boys in knee pants, and girls in bonnets. There were laborers with deep dirt streak faces and railroad officials in tall black hats, the waistline of their pants straining against their ample midsections. Among the crowd, there were Germans and Swedes and Chinese and Irish in abundance. They were short and fat and tall and thin. They were wealthy and impoverished, self-made and delivered. And collectively, they represented the great dynamic throng of America. They pressed in on the engines from all sides, the pitch of their eagerness nosing towards chaos, until officials were forced to clear the hordes from the track. The great men, those architects of American progress, Hughes and Stanford, delivered speeches. They spoke of overcoming the impossible and of shrinking the world one track at a time. At last, they raised their silver hammers above the golden spike, and though they both missed their mark, they pronounced the job complete. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets, at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, February 7th, 2022, which means we've entered into tree fort season again. It was only a short six months ago that we were basking in the glow of the first ever fall edition of tree fort, but now we must prepare for tree fort number 10, March 23rd through the 27th in beautiful downtown Boise. Today, for our small world edition of our Tree Fort podcast, we are reconnecting with Jonathan Edison, whom we've spoken with three times prior, the last being March of 2019, at which time he was in the midst of writing a beast, as he called it. Well, that beast was published this past January 11th, 2022, by Dutton, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Jonathan Evanson's Small World is an epic novel for now, set against such iconic backdrops as the California Gold Rush, the development of the Transcontinental Railroad, and a speeding train of modern-day strangers forced together by fate. It is a grand entertainment that asks big questions. The result is a historical epic with a Dickensian flair that considers whether our nation has made good on its promises. It dazzles as its characters come to connect with one another through time, and it hits home as it probes our country's injustices, big and small, straight through to its deeply satisfying final words. Jonathan Evison is the New York Times bestselling author of seven novels, most recently Legends of the North Cascade and Small World. As, as a teen, Evison was the founding member of the punk band March of Crimes, which included future members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. He lives with his family in Washington State. He has done readings at most of the tree forts and will be appearing again this year 
It's always fun to talk to Jonathan, and it's become one of our little rituals here. How are you doing today, Jonathan? Good, man. Sounds like we're about done here after that intro. <laughs> There's nothing left to say. I think you've out covered it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's always great to have you on. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to Tree Fort again. Well, so I want to start at, at the Boise Depot. You've been to Boise so many times. Have you, uh, have you visited the depot? I don't know. What is the depot? I guess not. That's our you... train station at the top I... of the hill. Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever been to the depot, no. Oh, that's so interesting because the depot is a is a it's a place that I love, but it's it's this romantic 19th century place because before the airport, it kind of was the central hub for the whole area. Sure. It now it's a little out of town. Is that that's probably why I've never been there. I'm always on foot. No, well, it is a little out of town. So when you come down the hill from the airport down into town, it's it's uh, kind of this strange obelisk thing that you drive by. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to check it out this time. Yeah. I well, have a, well, you know, I've, obviously I'm a little more interested in railroads now than I was uh, in the past. You know, after doing so much research about railroads and talking to so many railroad people and engineers. and Well, and that's what I'm curious about is, like, the idea... It's it's the idea of the metaphor that connects us at whatever time it is. You know, like there's always connection, but so, you know, what was it like? Why this book? You know, what what was it about the railroads and and where did this start? Do you think? Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, really, where this started was just the conceit of the thing. I mean, you know, I'm on like the eve of my fiftieth birthday. I really wanted to swing for the fences. I wanted to write a, a book with. Uh, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to take a shot at the great American novel, really just uh, a novel that kind of spoke to the present moment in America and one that encompassed uh, a great deal, as much of its history as I could, you know, reasonably undertake in in one cohesive story. Um, so the railroads became uh, uh, really, for lack of a better word, a vehicle for, for this in order to, you know, speak to the present moment without writing a political polemic, uh, you know, I, I I like the metaphor of all these strangers sort of forced together on a doomed train speeding north. It should actually be speeding south if I was going to really nail the metaphor there, actually, now that I think about it. Um, and then obviously this idea of connecting east and west and shrinking the world overnight with the Transcontinental Railroad that allowed me to just to bring the, you know, the train tracks did for the narrative what they did to the country. The country they connected the coast the the train was the train allowed me uh, besides the uh you know genealogical connections and place connections this novel is all about connectivity and um that's you know in terms of american history that 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 connection of the east and west at promontory point was was huge in the in in, in the nation building experiment well so i think was it 2019 that they celebrated a big anniversary for the well so i i didn't set up the, the intro with any any context could you tell listeners what the golden spike is and why it's important oh the golden spike was just a symbolic spike it was the last you know when, when they lay tracks down they have a team of guys that you know hammer the spikes down and they do the first guy hits it and the next guy comes along and finishes it and they go and gone and they laid miles and miles of tracks that way through the through the midwest 
Um, the, the golden spike is that last spike that was put where the, the Chinese crews came from the West and they, they had to blast through the Sierras. They had the much tougher job. You see these harrowing pictures of and daguerreotypes of dudes hanging from baskets, you know, over the sides of cliffs and stuff. Um, the going wasn't quite as rough for the uh, Irish crews coming West, but they met at Promontory Point in Utah. The two, the, you know, the two, the two teams met and, and then the golden spike was just this symbolic spike to, to, you know, symbolize the uh, completion of the transcontinental railroad, which, you know, was a uh, undertaking that took decades. Well, so then when you started writing, was it in 2018 that you launched on this or 2019? I think it, it was about, it was right before my 50th birthday. So it must've been 2018 fall of 2018. Mm -hmm. Did and then you... I finished it. I finished it probably you know, year and a half or two years ago. It's it's interesting because like uh, you were you were describing this to me when I spoke to you in March of 2019. Like I think you were snowed in and you'd written a lot of pages, like 70 pages at that time. Yeah, like 140 pages. Yeah, I got snowed in for 10 days. It was one of the great productive periods of my life. I loved it. Every day it was just, I was right midstream in the novel and every day there was nothing to do. I'm snowed in. I don't have the kids. I had plenty of food and beer and just every day that I lived inside the story. It just, it got easier and easier to navigate. The pages just piled and piled and piled. So, you know, I wrote about a quarter of the book in, in a 10 day period. Well, I'm trying to think like, I, I distinctly remember a celebration in 2019, I think of the golden spike. Uh, again, I can't do math, so I don't know what that. <laughs> well, I think, I think it was what, what was it? 1869. It was finished. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be, uh, yeah, you are not good at math, are you? Yeah. Uh, uh, 30, so 19, that would have been uh, 130 years or whatever. Huh. No, no, 150 years. Yeah, that's what, that makes more sense. 150 years. And I, think really it was, math, <laughs> I think it was the 50th anniversary. So I was combining the, the moonshot too with this because they were really similar in the idea of like the scope of the grandeur of, you know, this. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Um, but did you have a sense of that before? Like, did you know that you were going to get to Promontory? Was that something that you knew about or is that something that you discovered? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, uh, I, I mean, I didn't know necessarily I was going to have that particular scene, but I, I mean, I knew I had to complete the Transcontinental Railroad because it's just all tied up in this this idea, the title of the book, really, Small World. You know, I mean, the idea uh, that, that that's what the Transcontinental Railroad sought to do is just shrink the world by connecting the coast. So, you know, a journey that used to take three, four months, six months even, uh, could now be achieved in six days. You know, you could go to church on Sunday in Chicago and, and be eating lunch in San Francisco the following Sunday. Um, so this idea of like overnight the world shrinking in terms of being able to access it. I mean, it was just such a grueling journey before through the Rockies, over the Sierras. Uh, you know, we know so many doomed, uh, you know, well, we know what happened to the Donners. <laughs> So <laughs> we do. Uh, the uh, when I was talking to you in 2019, you were talking in terms of cycles, and and so like that's the interesting thing from a reader in reading this book. You you talked about ten cycles, and so what, as I read it, I didn't necessarily perceive cycles. You also mentioned that it reads fast, and I would agree with you that it does read fast. And so there is some mathematical trick that you did to keep me like there's so many characters 
if I were to guess, I would say maybe there are like 12 main characters in this book. I'd say 12 main characters. I think there's like 20 points of view because there's a few ancillary points of view as well. Um, but yeah, sort of 12 main characters. And, and that's then, that was whittled down from like 18. I mean, I, I had to cut about a third of the characters out just because they weren't serving the whole. There was nothing wrong with the characters themselves, but a few of the characters began to create sort of logistical problems for me. Like uh, it started to strain the um, bounds of credulity to get them on that modern train and just, you know, logistical concerns. I had to have that all working very smoothly. And in terms of the fact that it reads very fast and it is a page turner, that was sort of the challenge for me was to write this huge ponderous novel with all these points of view, but make it a, as, to make it as hard as I could for myself, make it a page turner. And, and the biggest challenge of writing a book that's got, uh, you know, 20 points of view is that you're going to have 60 and 70 pages at a time where these, you know, characters are off the page. And I never want to write a book that's got like a persona dramatist at the beginning or a key, you know, where the reader has to go, okay, now who is this? Let me go back and look, this is related to that person. I don't want to break the spell for the reader. So like the key to, to, to executing this novel became to create a system of connectivity to help the reader juggle all these characters and track them without having to pause and try to remember. And so the way I did that was you just have to figure out ways to, to bring these other characters into the consciousness of the reader, even when they're not on the page for 50, 60, 70 pages at a time. And I did that through this system of connectivity that would begin with like, well, you know, genealogy. And then there'd be a layer that's just place. Then there's a layer that's experiential. And then there's a layer that's thematic. And then there's a, finally, there's a layer, you know, there's, there's coincidence too. You know, that's was one of the reasons that I think the novel's characterized as Dickensian at times. That'd be one of the reasons is that the world itself is small. The narrative world is small. There's room for coincidence. Um, so all those, all that connectivity adds up to a novel in which the characters are still in the consciousness of the reader, even when the reader's not with those characters. And I think that was the most important thing. That and stringing the narratives along in a way that was, you know, kind of leaving them hanging a little bit. Like I would leave them in an important dramatic point and then go to the other character so that when they come back to the other where they just left 70 pages later they're it's a cliffhanger basically you know what i mean so they have no trouble picking back up where they are because i left them at a very dramatic place yeah i have read books where it's someone handles it they try to do the same thing but it's almost annoying you know like because yeah. you you don't want to be left on that um yeah, but with this one, I definitely, it, there was a nice flow to it where it, it just, I didn't ever feel like I struggled to keep track of characters. Like, you know, like you were saying with a key, mm -hmm. I remember reading Infinite Jest and like there are places in that where you just have a bookmark where you have to refer back to try mm -hmm. and figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah, I never <laughs> want to do that. I never, I because, you know... It's really easy to lose a reader. One false note, you can lose a reader. And just the reader literally stopping the action of reading and having to go back, that breaks the spell for me. So I didn't want to do that ever. I don't ever want to do that. So I'm, I, I've gotten pretty adept at, 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 at uh, juggling big casts of characters. And I think the reason it doesn't isn't annoying, I guess, probably in this case, is because there's a 
another re reason for it. I'm not just trying to manipulate the reader by leaving them on a cliffhanger every time. The book is like a puzzle. It operates like a puzzle. I'm laying these pieces out on the table and I'm letting the worker, I'm letting the reader work with me. In so like after the fir first two chapters, you're like, oh, these are like vignettes. But by the third, mm -hmm. by the third cycle, you're already realizing you're already starting to grasp the larger picture of the narrative. And, and by the time you're mid midway through the book, you're not reading the book as these individual narratives. It doesn't feel that way as a reader. It feels like you're reading parts of a larger thing. And so that's why I think it's not annoying. I don't also, I never want to write a book where it's like, I mean, everyone's going to have their favorite characters, but like one thing I don't like about books that juggle points of view is uh, if I don't like one of the points of view and I'm like, Oh God, it's this lady again. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, had yeah, to make yeah. the character sort of, not, I wouldn't say equally likable, but equally relatable, you know, uh, and I needed them to have something universal in each one of them that would speak to the reader and some part of the reader because, you know, we all contain multitudes. And so I think they are pretty equally compelling, whether or not they're more like everybody's going to have their favorite characters, but it was important that they all had in sort of equal share in the drama of the novel, you know, nobody's more important than anybody else in the novel. I mean, so it's very egalitarian, very democratic in its conception that way, which, you know, there you go. That's America. Yeah. <laughs> well, the so theoretically, the, <laughs> uh, the whiteboards was that so like I, I saw a post on your Facebook where you had all these whiteboards. Were those the whiteboards they were using to get your handle on this world to contain it so that you could make it, you know? Yeah, I think the ones you're referring to, I posted recently, those are for a novel I'm working on now, which is sort of equally unwieldy because it's a reincarnation narrative. So there's lives spread across the centuries, ah. uh, but with one centralized story. But it's the same process. Uh, and, and this the novel I'm working on provides a, a pretty good comparison just because it is not all my novels have 20 points of view about half of them do but then sometimes they're more simple and straight ahead but I what, what that process is 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 just a process of distillation for me where I basically have about 150 square feet of blank page uh you know poster board and all these different colors of highlighter pens and I just start to uh I just start to kind of stream of consciousness, write down my ideas and green will be character. This sheet over here will be character. This one over here will be theme. This one here will be like set pieces. This thing will be loose ends that I don't know how kind of how they figure out. And as I go along and I'm switching colors, pens and, uh, what happens is, is I, I, I might start with 20 of these sheets, but as, as the vision becomes more distilled and part of that process is me just stepping back and looking at them. And by doing things color coded, I can track like 20 pages. I can track the green lines throughout the, you know, like a snake through all the different pages or the, the, which are, you know, correlative lines of thinking or characters or sometimes both. And then um, eventually what happens is I whittle it down to one or two or three sheets because I've got enough of a handle on the vision um, that like I can consolidate all that information that was on 20 sheets onto three sheets that are more cohesive. And then that's kind of the, the thesis of the novel, for lack of a better word, is, you know, it's not an outline per se, you know, it's not, I'm not, I'm not blocking out scene per scene, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. It's more about uh, the rules and the logic of the novel. Um, you know, there's got to be rules that novels adhere to if they're going to be consistent, uh, particularly logically with your characters. And then, uh, 
Yeah. So it's not an outline. It's just a, it's just my vision of it. And once I have those three pages that I, I know the thesis, I know the, the heartbeat of the novel. I know the thing that's got to be in every sentence of the novel, the thing that's got to permeate the whole novel so that I can achieve that sort of a narrative cohesion, which is a tricky thing. I mean, you know, with all those characters and all, you know, all those places and all those bifurcated timelines, but if you can, and I think I achieved that here, if I can, get a sort of crystallized, you know, crystallized idea that sort of permeates the entire novel, then then I think I've achieved cohesion on the larger scale, you know? So was was this your a most ambitious novel at that point in time, The Small World? Um, yeah, probably, well, West of here had 48 points of view, I think. Uh, it may have had actually more points of view. I would say I probably handled the narrative flow a little more adeptly. They were a little different animals. Um, this one was designed to be more uh, propulsive narratively. The other one was more considered and I think a, a tougher ask for the reader, I think equally rewarding, but a, a tougher ask for the reader. Like it was a harder puzzle for the reader to put together. Hmm. Whereas this one, I think part of, part of it is just the nature of the narrative I wanted to write. And part of it is that I think I got a little better at it as well as just, uh, um, yes. Yeah, so I don't know. It's about equal with West of here and this in terms of the ambition of them. Mm-hmm. And what's, what about the length? I, I, they're, about, they're both came in about, I mean, they typeset them. And so, I mean, in manuscript, they were both about, uh, you know, six, 700 pages, but then they, they whittle them down to like 500 usually unless you're Jonathan Franz and for whatever reason they want his books to be a doorstop. Cause I noticed like the chapters start like halfway down the page and the title is like 20 <laughs> lines per page. But for mine, I guess, cause I'm not Jonathan Franz and they're just like, man, we got to get this thing under 500 for the price point or something. Well, he wrote a train book too. Did you happen to read that one? Uh-uh. Oh yeah. Was that the St. Louis one, 27th city or whatever? No, the corrections, the, the progenitor of the family was, uh, he worked for, a train company. Oh, might... oh, I did read the, I read that years ago when it came out. I don't remember. I remember one lady was a chef. I don't know. He, I didn't really like it because he didn't like his characters. So I didn't like him. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you as a reader. I know you have a lot of writer friends and writer colleagues. Do you end up reading mostly your friends works or how, how voracious a reader are you these days? Sadly, not very. It's usually what's on my blurb pile. And, and I'm always relieved when a friend or a writer I really love asks me to blurb their book because that means I have to read it. I have three small kids, yes. you know, three school age kids, and I'm always working on at least one or two novels. Um, it's kind of sad how little I read. I mean, I managed to knock out maybe 15, 20 books a year, but I mean, 30 years ago, dude, I mean, I was reading three, four, five books a week, you know? But so like, that's something that I think about, like in my 20s, in the nineties, I would, I would read before bed every night. Um, it was a different time. I wouldn't, I didn't have a phone that I would stare at in bed. And so I know that that's definitely made my reading life change. Uh, Do you sense the same thing? Oh yeah. But I mean, even a bigger distraction than that is just kids. So like, Unless I'm on, I work two, two or three nights a week on my own at the cabin. But on the other nights, man, I go to bed my schedule's whack, dude. Like on my writing nights, I go to bed at three thirty-four in the morning, but then 
then during the school week or the days I'm, uh, you know, to getting the kids up, I go to bed at 8 30, nine o'clock. And so I can't, and, and I usually got one of the girls co-sleeping with me. One of the younger kids is co-sleeping with me. So I can't, I can't turn the light back on and read. Plus I know I'm going to have to get up at six 30. So it's like, I may as well get some sleep because I, I didn't, I sleep maybe four hours a night on my work night. So I, but then, yeah, there's just aside from the, I'm not, you know, aside from just social networks and all that, there's just like a constant tide of emails to be answered and stuff. There's a million things distracting me from, from reading. But I think the biggest one besides the kids is just the writing. I'm at the point where I just love to, I love what I do so much that like, I'll, I'll be reading something. And if it's bad, I'm like, ah, jeez, I can, I can do this. I want to go write. But if it's good, I want to go write even more, you know, and you're like, <laughs> oh, I love it. You know, when you're really into, I can't, it's like, I'm addicted to the process of writing. So it's like when I'm reading sometimes it's like, man, I just, just makes me want to go write. What's, uh, that's that's funny. Um, have you have you read anything good lately that you know stands out or? Well, I'm reading uh, uh, Ocean State by Stuart O'Nan right now. I just started, which promises to be awesome. As everything Stuart O'Nan wrote, so I just finished Bill Rohrbach's Lucky Turtle um, from Algonquin. That was great. Um, Willie Vlatton's The Night Always Comes. Uh, and these so, are all your friends though, right? They're all friends. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I got enough friends now that it's yeah. like, it keeps me busy. Those 20 books a year. Uh, um, you know, that was one of the thrilling things about becoming, you know, entering the literary, you know, big stage or whatever, after, you know, 20 years of writing in a vacuum, you know, until I published Lulu, I didn't know any writers. I didn't have anybody to talk about what I did with. I had no facility to even discuss what I did. It's just something I did for seven or eight books that weren't published. But once I uh, was published, it was so fun to meet and cultivate all these friendships, you know, I just run into people on the road or meet them at festivals. And, and, and I just became fast friends with some of my favorite writers. And, 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 you know, that was 15 years ago. And so, you know, growing with them and talking shop with them and closing down bars with them over the years has been one of the great thrills of my life, because it's like my, my literary life just opened up. Instead of being in a vacuum now, I just had all these great resources. And you know, this, this metaphorical water cooler that I could stand around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so I consider you a prolific writer. Do you consider yourself a prolific writer at this point? I, well, yeah. I mean, compare, I, I don't consider myself prolific. I just work hard. I mean, I'm already, I've got another novel and a half already finished and I I've got a feature screenplay I finished too, since this book. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, my goal is to publish a book every couple of years, but I'm usually ahead by that point. It takes me about a year usually to write a book, year to year to 18 months, depending on how big it is. I think more than anything, I'm just consistent, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not L. Ron Hubbard sitting there, you know, I mean, like, you know, loaded on Benzedrine writing 50,000 words, you know, a week as a matter of course. It's just that I'm consistent, you know, when I get in a rhythm and I'm doing my three days a week. The, the more I get into the novel, the more, the easier it is to just get out of my own way. And the pages tend to pile up and I don't usually lack for ideas because I usually, I only have like two themes and there's a million characters and my books are generally pretty character driven. So I don't reach points where I'm struggling for six months to be like, what am I going to work on next? I, I'm never in that position because I've usually got two or three sort of ideas, you know, that I can start working on. And I also, that's the other thing is, is that I just, I, I, I work on two or three things at a time, 
but I'm at three or three different parts of the process. So it's not as schizophrenic as it sounds. It's like I might be line editing the book that's coming to come to publication soon. And then I might be composing the book I'm really working on. And then I might be re researching the book that I'm going to work. And that way it allows for workflow. You know what I mean? There's some days you just don't have the wherewithal. Maybe I got a hangover. Maybe there's just too much kid stuff going on. I don't have the wherewithal to get out of my own way and, and compose for eight hours, but I can, I can line edit or I could uh, research. So there's just always something to keep me busy. I, you know, the, the key for my what productivity is just, I got a, you know, I got a family of five to feed. So, you know, I, I can't afford to not be productive. Yeah. So I guess that was the thing that I, I did. I heard you say last time, but I grokked it when I re-listened to our talk is, you know, like this idea of how you have your workflow basically where like you were in the middle, you were in the middle of the headspace of, um, small world when we were talking, but the book that was coming out was the legend of, legends the, of the North Cascade. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. So I'm curious where, um, in terms of think, you just said that you have one and a half books done. Is that yeah. right? So you have one that's basically in the can that's going to work its way through to publication, but you're working on the one that will come out after that one. Uh, actually, in this case, I think the one I'm working on now will publish next because I like the way it follows Small World. Oh, wow. It's a little more dynamic. So I think, uh, I think it's a better follow up to this one. And then I'll sit, the, the other one's a Western. So it's not like, it's not so much a matter of the zeitgeist or, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. pretty, it's, it's, it's purely historical, which I think is the first time I've ever done a purely historical novel. All my historical fiction in the past has had a, a modern timeline attached to it. The Western does not. So it becomes a little less important in terms of the, you always worry that you're going to miss something in the zeitgeist. If you're writing something very timely, it happens, man. Yeah, I mean, somebody will publish the same book at the same time as you. I mean, whether it's the same title or just the same ideas, it, there, there's stuff floating around up there that people latch onto. And so I think I'm going to publish again and again next. And then then I'll be sitting on that other one. And then um, I think if all goes well with this screenplay and I sell it, it's being shopped right now. And then I want to start writing a screenplay every once a year or something. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, just extra revenue and it's kind of a fun palate cleanser. It's so much, I, I don't want to, not, not, it's just so much easier in the sense that it, it's so much less material. You know, there's like 18,000 words probably in a screenplay and you can really reinvent the thing. A, a screenplay can be very flawed. And in like eight hours, you can get your brain around it and, 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 and reinvent an entire draft where that would take six to eight weeks on a novel. So it's kind of a fun palate cleanser to write and, and you know, it keeps your dramatic structure chops you know, sharp and stuff like that. But uh, I, I, so I'm going to start mixing in a screenplay a year, I think too. What about uh, adapting some of your other works for the screen? I know. Um... <laughs> yeah, not, I'm not, I see, that's the thing. Not so interesting. I think there's a reason, there's a reason Hollywood never wants the novelist to adapt their own work, <clears throat> which is why I've never been asked. Like uh, Harriet's been at focus for like four years now and Laura Dern's producing and acting but they still don't have a script that they're happy with. I don't think. And they've gone through like three teams of screenwriters. And I'm kind of like, I just wrote that screenplay. And I'm kind of like, if I sell that and I have a credit, I'm kind of being like, come on. I know you don't want a novelist to do their own thing, but look, I'm a screenwriter too, but cause I want to see Harriet happen. I think it'd be a great movie, but generally speaking, I don't really want to adapt my own work. I, I, I want to write an original screenplay. 
you got to kill too many darlings when you adapt the work. <laughs> you're afraid that a novelist trying to adapt their own work won't be able to do that. Oh. Won't be able to kill their darlings. Where if I just, uh, you know, if I realize, look, I got 40 scenes to accomplish what I'm doing here. And, you know, I mean, I frame the story differently. Mm-hmm. They say that short stories actually adapt better to screenplays often just because there's not as much material. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well let's let's change gears completely and talk about Treefort a little bit. Did you did you make it to the fall edition? I, I think sure you did. did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I definitely it was, was great. Yeah, it was. It was a lot of fun and the weather was it was really suited for a festival, I thought. The the fall Yeah, time. I'm hoping it's that good in March. It was a nice little return to normalcy, you know. I I'm still very wary during the pandemic. Like I didn't go into any small little sweaty clubs and see some of the bands I might have normal seen. I did, I, I did most of my music at the main stage, which was great. Everybody's masked, everybody's backs. The main stage, that area is big enough that, you, you know, you can create a little, you know, you're not all crowded in there. And so it was just nice to be back to feel kind of normal, even though everyone's wearing a mask, but you, you felt safe and not anxious. And it was just, you know, after a year and a half of not being able to do anything like that, it was, it felt so great. And this year I'm bringing the whole family. So I'm going to bring all the kids and they're going to check out Kid Fort. And Cool. Yeah. So this yeah. is my fifth year, I think, but I've never brought the family before. I'm usually solo. So this will be, this will be particularly fun. So I can get some ear, ear plugs into my kids and take them to see some outdoor music. And Yeah. I'm trying to remember what's coming uh, as far as, have you looked at all in, on the, um, on the website, the lineup, and is there anything that you've noticed? There was, I saw about six or seven bands I was really excited about, but I, uh, I, my mind is such a sieve right now. I don't remember who it was. I remember in the fall, uh, originally Detroit Cobras were going to be there last time, but uh, so I was hoping they would repeat this year, but Rachel Nagy died, so huh. which is a drag because I was thinking they might have rescheduled because they canceled for September. I thought maybe they'd come back in March, but that's a, yeah, no, I saw six or seven bands on there that I was really excited to see. I can't remember who it was because it's been months since I looked. Yeah. Uh, maybe Kim Gordon, the Sonic youth. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. You know, I always like to see built to spill, you know, you can count on that. You can <laughs> remember all kids. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what, what do you know what you're doing at this? Uh, you uh, as a not performer? Really, but I know that I'm doing something with uh, Jason Mott, um, who just won the National Book Award for Hell of a Book, and Jennifer Hay. I think we're going to do a, uh, I don't, we're, we're going to just do a, a panel on novel writing. I think it's pretty general. Um, but that'll be good because they're both brilliant writers. And, um, both friends as well. So we should have a good repartee. And then there's usually a couple, I'll do something with Larry Rosen's podcast. We'll do like a live podcast thing. And I, I, I'm anticipating I'll do at least three things. I usually do. Yeah. So Jason Mott, could you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, yeah. He just wrote hell of a book, which won the national book award uh, back in November which is an awesome exploration of race and other things. It's about a, but I, I don't want to give up the book because there's a, there's kind of a trick to the book that I don't want to uh, sure. spoil, but it's an excellent book and he's an excellent dude. And uh, it was, he's a great get for, you know, I know Christian was really excited to get the national book award winner for the festival, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like things kind of come uh, in waves a little bit. And so I, I guess I hadn't seen this. 
So that's great. But now, did you just do an event with him to promote your book also? Yeah, yeah. He he and I have become friends just really quickly because we're both at Dutton and he was so kind. He 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 after he won the um NBA, he was on Good Morning America to talk about, you know, a book he really liked and he picked Small World, which was awesome. My mom almost fell out of the chair. Oh, great. She watches that stuff every morning. Uh and then um then we he was also kind enough to do an event with me sponsored by uh Book Passage and the Book Catapult. Um so we had that conversation. So we've already developed kind of a nice rapport. So I'm looking forward to actually thanking him in person, you know, taking him out to a nice dinner because he's been super generous and let me, you know, ride his coattails after this NBA thing, you know? Nice. And then you mentioned Jennifer. Is, hey. Yeah, I spoke with her back in 2019 also, I think. Um, what has she been up to? I, I think the novel she's publishing is called Mercy Street. I believe she just about to publish a novel next month or two called mercy street uh, i haven't read it yet but it, it it revolves around an abortion clinic i think mm-hmm. and i think uh i know that rick russo just gave it a, a really great review in the new york times what, what about you and reviews how do you feel about reading reviews or your own work or is that something that you just oh i love about? it it's fun i mean look <laughs> i've got really sick skin so i'm not really uh, i'm not you know it's more important to me just to be a part of the conversation like i mean you know, if I'm the lead review in the New York Times, that means more than me th- than having it be a rave. You know, I'd rather be the f- lead review than, you know, be buried in the middle and get a rave. This book has reviewed better. I don't know. This and Harriet and Lomboy, I think, were pretty, pretty well reviewed in the sense that widely reviewed, but uh, uh, just really consistently good reviews. So that's been nice. Um, I mean, I've been pretty bowled over by some of the stuff people have said about this book. Um so, uh, but, but, you know, you get a bad one now and then I'll even go on Goodreads or Amazon and read them just to get, I want to know what the readers are thinking. I want to know what the conversation is. My job is to start the conversation. So I'm curious to hear and sure, whatever. It's frustrating if somebody just doesn't get your book and they, they, they just don't, you don't like their reading of it, but man, I don't take it personally. I just feel lucky to be in the conversation. You know, I'm just lucky to be as widely reviewed I am and as widely read as I am. There's a lot of stuff we were talking about zeitgeist one of the zeitgeist right now is removing books from school libraries i do you want to talk about that a little bit or your own kind of brush sure. with that? i mean lawn boy was challenged in i don't know 20 or 30 states you know they were pulling it off library shelves all because of one angry bear woman in uh leander texas read one passage of the book that's all she read and she read it out of context on a tiktok uh tiktok video uh and then the next thing you know uh glenn youngskin was using it in political commercials in virginia and the 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 conservatives have taken this book banning thing and mine has been one of four or five books that have been sort of the poster child's gender queer by maya kabobi is another one um where they're really i mean they're just trying to they've made it a political straw man where they're just trying to rally their voting core and say, look, they don't want the, the schools don't want you to have a, you know, a voice in what they teach them. They want to teach you this woke socialist literature and they don't want you to have a voice. But like the truth is, in in most cases where Lawn Boy has been reviewed, independently reviewed, it's going back on the shelves one by one because there's nothing wrong with it. I think what scares them more than anything is they don't like a non-binary hero who's half Latino, uh, who's, uh, you know, not white and Christian, basically. Well, did it, 
I mean, so I think it got kind of scary for a while, but did in the end, like, so the mouse. Yeah, I got a bunch of death threats and stuff like that. That was a little unnerving. I kind of shut down my social networks for uh, a few weeks, but um, then after that, it was more, mostly just an outpouring of support from educators, students, librarians, you know what I mean? Uh, overwhelming support for the book. It seems like it almost backfires from the conservatives point of view because it brings so much publicity to certain yeah, words. I know. <laughs> you know, it's foot, meat, gun. I mean, it's I, 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 like they, they, they sold out the print run, you know, unfortunately, because of the uh, supply chain issues, it's taken a little while to get another print run of the book. I don't know if it's the second, third, fourth. I don't know what print run it's on. I haven't checked, but um, yeah, they sold the book out. It wasn't available anywhere. I mean, you were, you, people were having to pay like, you know, 7,500 bucks for the hardback on Amazon if they were truly motivated. Yeah, no, it, it, it totally backfires. Yeah. And All you right. know, it's just going to drive these kids to the book too. I mean, what is going to make <laughs> a 17 year old kid going to go out and read a book if the parents are burning it? I mean, you know? Yeah. No, it, it's, it's a, it's a strange state of affairs for sure. Um, I, that's kind of, we were talking a lot about the last time we spoke about, uh, just wealth and inequality and and it's it's fascinating because you know um small world kind of just picks up right where that conversation or it precedes it basically because you were saying oh you think this is bad i've got my head in the 1850s and or this is just as bad as the 1850s you know so that you know it's just this this swirling mess of something that is difficult to move the needle much yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I only have a few themes too, and wealth and equity and classism. The, I mean, these are these are themes I return to a very again. Those two books look very different, but they're really both concerned with the state of the American dream. One's just kind of a buildings man that talks to you like a friend, and one's a big sprawling world beater. But at their heart, they really have very similar themes, and they they look to explore similar ideas and point out at certain inequities and racial assumptions and. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, these these are themes I just I work with over and over again. Well, could you speak a little bit about the themes and themes or the themes that are? I was thinking of again and again. Is that the the title of the the book that you're working? Yeah, on? again and again is the you know I was going to call it again and again and again. It's about a guy that just keeps being reborn. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a love story over twelve centuries kind of thing. But there's a there's a there's something to the book that I can't talk about. It was just kind of the nexus of the book, but I can't talk about it because it'll spoil because it's an execution thing. So um, cool. yeah, the themes are still sort of emerging with that. Um, I, I can't even talk about those. This book no, is- No, that's great. I want to say it's, I can't, I can tell you off the air what, what the crux of it is. But if I, if I start yeah. hinting at it, then there'd be no use in reading the book because- that's, that's great. Well, thank you. That was 42 minutes. Um, You've been listening to Jonathan Evison on 42 Minutes. More information about him can be found on his website, jonathanevison.net, to which we'll link. For more, and then, of course, treefortmusicfest.com. Um, as they get the schedules together, you'll, we'll be able to link to uh, where Jonathan will be performing around town. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows, subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. Is currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine. To find what you need, just type in Evison, and the links to all of those previous shows will appear. 
All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and see you all at Treeforge.